If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that's what we want from a heroine now. We want them as to be the agent of their own lives. We want determination, activity. That was author and historian Sarah Griswood on the qualities she believes modern audiences want to see in a medieval heroine. It's this combination of familiarity and strangeness that makes the Victorian era so appealing. And it's also very appealing for a certain style of crime fiction. And that was Nick Renison discussing his foray into historical fiction. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History Magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of all of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The White Queen, the lavish BBC dramatisation of Philippa Gregory's Cousins War series of books, is soon to draw to a close. One person who has been watching the series eagerly is historian Sarah Gristwood, whose own work has covered similar grounds. We sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, to meet Sarah at her home in Kent, 
where they discussed whether accuracy in historical fiction really matters, and if the Plantagenets are now set to match the Tudors in the popularity stakes. Okay, so Tudor history has dominated our TV screens for um, some years now, um, but the White Queen, um, which is on at the moment, explores the Plantagenet dynasty. Why do you think the Plantagenets have suddenly become so popular, and why hasn't this been the case before? It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Because, as you say, the Tudors have absolutely dominated up till now. I think, and, and yet when you look at the Plantagenet, the material, it's absolutely amazing. You can quite see why Shakespeare was so fascinated and you start to think goodness why haven't we heard mm. much more before i mean look at the look at the story being covered by the white queen you've got you know witchcraft accusations of incest fratricide all this and pretty mayday romance too but somehow it's a hard question i think partly the plantagenets haven't been covered as well as they might, even in popular history. Mm. Uh, so maybe that's had a kind of knock-on effect. Um, and I think that is, that's down partly, at least, to the sources. Okay. Um, the sources for this period are genuinely very difficult. Uh, they're very patchy. And oddly enough, they're far worse than they are for many earlier periods. Mm. Um, and of course, they are worse than ever for women who mm. fight on no battlefields and, mm. and make pass no laws in Parliament. Uh, and I think that, that television and novels do tend to like women, like heroines. And we've had a bit of a job mm. fishing them out of the Plantagenet era. Okay. And... The White Queen's attracted more than five million viewers during its first episode, um, but it has come under some criticism for some of its inaccuracies, and mm. some of the ones that come to mind are zips on costumes and um, over-cleanliness of some of its characters. But should these types of inaccuracies matter? Do you think it should? we should dismiss the series because well, of it? Well, the White Queen ha has been criticised a lot for things like corduroy, zips on costumes, mm. uh, clothes pegs, visible cement, rubber soles on shoes, I think, was mm -hmm. one. I'm not sure if those are the sort of inaccuracies that matter most. Mm. I feel there probably is a price to pay, you know, for popularising history. It's a big old ongoing debate, isn't yeah. it? And I'm not sure if, if, if those things aren't a price worth paying in the end. It was the same as with the Tudors, the television series, you know, and of course I'm sure the White Queen is hoping to to copy mm. its popularity. And that was criticised for the fact that the costumes were sort of were ten years or so out. Uh, I could live with that. Mm. Indeed and in truth, I could actually live with the fact that they amalgamated two sisters of Henry VIII <laughs> into one. Because I still think there is something, you know, some appreciation of the period you yes. can usefully get all the same. The place where I had trouble there was when in a scene set, what, around 1530, they took uh, some of the court senior courtiers down and showed this brand new invention called the printing press uh -huh. and you think oh yeah well that came over you know here almost half a century earlier and i'm not really sure if any appreciation you get of the early 16th century while thinking 
the printing press hadn't been mm. invent, you know hadn't been invented yet is 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 really useful but i'm not sure that i've seen that kind of inaccuracies on the white queen of course the other interesting point is there is so much we don't know yeah. about this period as far as things like costumes go okay we can be pretty sure they didn't have zip fasteners <laughs> um but there are some very you know curious gaps mm. in our knowledge and while undoubtedly the whole thing does look it looks like a shampoo ad and do i really think you know mm. all that they were that sparkling clean no of course i don't but automatically going for dark and grungy is a bit of a trap as well i think if you know sort of think of oh i don't know for angelico or think of um the colors on a, a an illuminated manuscript yeah. After all, you know, their own world probably seemed more brightly coloured to them than it does to us just mm. looking back at, you know. That's a good point. Um, and do you, th would you think it's possible to have a completely accurate historical series and still make it appeal and, make, you know, make people want to watch it? I doubt if it's possible ever to be 100% accurate for screen. Uh, just partly, of course, because... I'm one of the people who do believe we, that there isn't really one single objective history, and so we don't actually yeah. really know what 100% accuracy was. Mm -hmm. But I think also our own prejudices and you know the, the feelings and opinions of our own age will inform us our views in so many ways we don't even realise that, in a sense, you're kind of scuppered before you mm -hmm. start. And of course, it's filmed in Belgium as well, isn't it? Do you think that's added to? Do you think that's added to the series at all? Or? Yes, that's interesting. That the, the fact that they filmed in Bruges. Um, looking at it, actually, I do seem to get a slight flash of of Belgium. Mm. Um, just the landscape and things but I can quite see why they did it I mean Bruges is got is the most astonishing survival mm. of these old buildings far purer than anything I can think of right. here uh, the nearest equivalent here would be things like some of the Oxbridge colleges but of course that wouldn't work you know for every scene and no. never mind the practical problems and do you think it is right to make hist history appeal to a wider audience through historical uh, dramas like the White Queen Mm. There's a price has to be paid every time, do you think? It's a juggling act, isn't mm. it? I know An Anthony Beaver, I think, invented the phrase histotainment. And some historians would certainly say that no, you know, the price price is not worth paying. But the trouble is, what is the alternative? Mm. The alternative doesn't seem to be now you know, more and better information of other sorts all too often. Yeah. The alternative may be no information at all. So, no, I guess on the whole, I tend to come down on the side of the popularisers yeah. within limits. I mean, you've mentioned that there's problems with some of the sources. We don't have a lot mm, of knowledge about yeah. the, the period. Um, do you think, uh, well, you know, what sort of sources do we have um, from the period to sort of help us with these types of, of things? Mm. A lot of what we think of as contemporary sources for this particular late 15th century are in fact early 16th century ones, mm. chronicles written some years after the event. And that's another whole question, you know, do we take those as being fact 
or not. The scene at the beginning of um, The White Queen is a good example in point. I think the series was criticised for this sort of what they called Mills and Boone romance. Of, you <laughs> yes. know, Elizabeth Woodville standing under the, the tree. tree and exactly <clears throat> the oak tree waiting for Edward IV and stuff. But of course the fact is that comes in what? Hall's Chronicle in right. ooh, 1552 I think. Um, the idea of her saying that if she's too low to be his wife, she's too high to be his concubine, was Thomas More much earlier in the century. And the story of her defending her virtue with a dagger was reported by a writer who died in the 1480s. So yeah. the what sources we do have, you know, are often not altogether concerned with 100% objective fact. The mythologising, the storytelling started very early. Mm. I mean, it is a very exciting period. Why do you think it hasn't inspired more people to write about it? And... It is difficult, isn't it? Mm. Because, of course, The Wars of the Roses, heaven knows it had Shakespeare. Yeah. And now we've got this burst of you know, popularity. Mm. I mean, the Philippa Gregory novels, the series, and I, you know, fashion pages and the magazines have gone all sort of Guinevere goes to Camelot. <laughs> I see there's even a shade of lipstick called Queen Medieval. Is there? there is. <laughs> um meant to be inspired by the colour you get if you rub berries on your lips or something. Um, I suppose the trouble... Well, I think one of the problems, actually, is that this particular patch, The Wars of the Roses, doesn't necessarily show us to ourselves in a very good light. Right. it is usually presented in terms of the wars, the battlefields mm. on which the great noble families, you know, fought for control of the country. That's one reason why the women have tended to get written out of the story a bit. But, I mean, this wasn't a kind of heroic war. This wasn't a patriotic war. There isn't really the equivalent of, you know, Henry V and Agincourt and all that. It's a, it, There's a, just a slight element, I think, of... Families who already have a lot squabbling to get even more. There's a mm. kind of feeling almost that they were the greedy bankers of their day. Yeah. You know, and all we hear about are these powerful, quarrelling nobles. And I think there has been a slight element of who cares who wins. And I think the way the Wars of the Roses were yeah. taught in schools hasn't really helped. Partly it was presented, certainly as I first saw it, you know, sort of ladybird books when I was, you know, a young child mm. and things, as a kind of neat two-party red rose versus white rose. Um, and that was very kind of tidy and not terribly convincing. In fact, of course, if you look at it, and indeed even if you look at the series, You've got what's far more like politics as we know it today. You know, sudden changes of alliance, queasy coalitions, compromises. And I think in a way we prefer that now. But I think we haven't quite known how how to approach this for a long time. Do you think people are aware of some of the the key characters? Obviously in the Tudor period we have very strong characters like Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and people know those people, yeah. those characters. No, actually, I'm not sure we are aware of that mm. many of the characters. We should be, really, because looking at it, you think, well, part of this, why wasn't Edward IV, you know, as oh. vivid in people's minds as Henry VIII? Um, except not the six wives, of <laughs> that's course. That's why. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Uh... But no, I don't think, I think there was a time when people, yes, Warwick the Kingmaker was a sort Mm. of, you know, phrase, but I think that's gone a bit now. And certainly when I began to write my book Blood Sisters, I was very taken aback by 
just how extraordinary the stories of these women were, but these were women of whom most people had never even heard. Mm. They may just about have heard of Elizabeth Woodville, but I mean, even taking taking the take the three protagonists of this series, Elizabeth Woodville, Margaret Beaufort, Anne Neville. Yeah, you're not going to find many people who know much about Anne Neville, yeah. even though her story is as extraordinary as any in history. Yeah, and just mentioning those those three women, mm. which do you think modern audience will be able to relate to the best they're not kind of your typical mm. heroines are they no i'm 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 quite interested in the job that the writers philippa gregory first yeah. of course had to make these women into sort of 21st century mm. user-friendly heroines elizabeth woodville probably quite easy after all you know a commoner who married a king for love yeah. where have we heard that before yes. recently <laughs> yeah um and margaret beaufort now it's a bit difficult because a lot of the information we have about the real margaret and the portraits and things are from her in old age mm. and it's all about her piety her religion and you know we can't quite relate to that very yeah. easily but also it was clear she was formidably ambitious yes, yes. Uh, a survivor and a fixer and i think we can relate to that mm. today so she's a, a, she works as a heroine of a different sort Anne neville's the one with whom i think there is a problem yeah. i mean she did have an you know amazing story brought up as an you know in a yorkist family then married off to the lancastrian prince of wales to cement her father's unlikely alliance with them uh, then you know that husband dead within months um taken back into Yorkist care or custody, kept disguised as a kitchen maid. And that's even before she married the future yeah. Richard III. But, and it's a big, big but, with Anne Neville, the sources are awful, oh, frankly. Right. There's, there is an awful lot we don't know. Um, Philippa Gregory, I, I know, has said in an interview that at a certain point she decided Anne Neville, her Anne Neville, mm. would take control of her own din din uh, destiny. Mm. Not her own dynasty, sorry. <laughs> her own destiny. Yeah. Um, and that's what we want from a heroine now. We want them as, to be the agent of their own lives. Mm. We want determination, activity. Now, it's possible the real Anne Neville did the same thing. Do you agree with but that? But yeah. we, we just don't mm. know. All you can say from an honest non-fiction point of view is, sadly, the sources don't tell us. Mm. I hope it was true. I'd like to think it yeah. was true. But the evidence does not say. So you think those women are the sorts of people that we want to see as heroines today? I think for heroines today, we we, we want them to we want them to be take charge types yeah. up to a point. I think there may have been a day when when sort of victims played as as, as heroines, but I'm not sure that's mm. most successful now. And Warwick in the series has mm. been it comes over as quite a dark character, doesn't he? Um, is that, is that the kind of feeling that you get from him when you've, you've been writing? Yes, on the whole, yes. I think mm. Warwick, I think you don't get to go down in history as the kingmaker without an, a good dollop of unscrupulousness mm. and a fair old determination. Yeah. And after all, what, we, what do we know about him? We know that he did help Edward IV to the throne as the Yorkist king, but that then, when he wasn't getting what he felt he should from that dynasty, mm. he married one of his daughters to Clarence, 
you know, Edwards who then tried to stage a coup yeah. and married the other daughter to the Lancaster, you know, made an unlikely alliance with Queen Margaret of Anjou, the Lancastrian, the deposed Lancastrian yeah. queen, uh, who previously, you know, he'd been at complete enmity, but mm. anything for power. Yeah. And what do you think the impact of the discovery of Richard III's remains has had on making the period kind of... M- come up more in people's minds. Mm. I think the discovery at Leicester of, of, of Richard's bones, I think it has changed things, actually. I think, it, A, it just plain opened far more people's eyes mm. to this period. Uh, but also, I think it brought a kind of a sort of actuality. Um, I think part of the reason that we have always had more about the Tudors is we've sort of got, we've got more buildings, we've got portraits, we have ways into them, basically. Mm. And it's almost that for anything before 1500, it's quite hard to find a way in. You know, most of the buildings are kind of stripped and despoiled, most of the pictures aren't, aren't portraits as we know it. And I think finding Richard's skeleton, uh, you know, with all and with the thing at like the scoliosis and the reports yeah. of what the, what they called the humiliation injuries inflicted probably after death, um, it gives a sort of human element. Yeah, and I think suddenly it all seems a lot closer to us than it did before. It seems like real people. Yeah, well, exactly, like real people. And finally, do you have any predictions as to what you think is going to be the next dynasty to come under the spotlight? Well, I think we're moving back in time, yeah. really, because we've done the Tudors exhaustively <laughs> and probably everything since. You know, mm. I mean, there's been stories always about the 18th century, the 19th century. Yeah. But if you move back and think of figures like, well, look at heroines. Catherine Swinford, there's a good romantic story yes. for you. Um, you know, all that long, long relationship with John of Gaunt oh. and finally marrying. And look, Eleanor of Aquitaine, well before. Now, you know, you want you want a forceful heroine, you can't get much better than no. her. So I think history may be moving further backwards in time. <laughs> we may be better to talk to you about that than a <laughs> year or so's time. <laughs> That was author and historian Sarah Gristwood. Sarah's book, Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Wars of the Roses, is published by Harper Press. And if you're in the UK, you can catch the final episode of The White Queen on BBC One this coming Sunday at 9pm. Before our next interview, I'd like to quickly tell you about a couple of exciting digital products from BBC History magazine. The First World War Story is a new iPad app that describes the conflict through expert articles, stunning images, audio lectures and video. You can find out about the key battles and events of the war, as well as discovering how it impacted on the lives of ordinary soldiers and civilians. You can get hold of the First World War story on iTunes now. It's priced at £4.99 in the UK or $6.99 in the US. Still on the iPad, our September edition of the magazine includes a special interactive feature on the Battle of Flodden. To coincide with the 500th anniversary of this crucial Anglo-Scottish clash, we've put together videos, audio and interactive maps to tell the story in a fresh and original way. Now, If you own an iPad and you're not already a digital subscriber, then this is a great time to start. You'll find us on the newsstand. Today also sees the release of our September edition in print. And as well as our look at the Battle of Flodden, we're exploring the history of vampire attacks, meeting the French Revolution's Man of Terror, 
and revealing the perils of medieval letter writing. You can get hold of the September issue in the shops now. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now let's return to the world of historical fiction. Nick Renison, who writes our historical fiction reviews, has just completed a novel of his own, Carver's Quest. Our books editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Nick to discuss his experiences of writing the book and to ask what advice he'd offer to other people hoping to get started in this industry. It's my debut novel, which is called Carver's Quest, uh, and it's set in the year 1870. It follows the adventures of a young gentleman named Adam Carver and his stroppy servant, Quint Devlin, and they're seeking out an ancient Greek manuscript which may or may not hold the key to the whereabouts of gold that once belonged to Philip II of Macedon, um, who was Alexander the Great's father. And in the process of looking for this manuscript, they stumble across dead bodies in London. They find themselves the targets of anti-English rioting in Athens. And they spend time in one of the strange isolated monasteries of Meteora in Thessaly, which is where visitors are hauled up the uh, side of mountain mountains to the uh, monasteries in nets and baskets. And everything comes to a, a climax in uh, an archaeological dig uh, a little bit further north in northern Greece, which was then under the control of the Ottoman Empire. And how long has it taken you to write? Well, uh, it's taken me rather longer than I or my publisher was originally expecting, because uh, originally I signed a contract that I would uh, uh, supply the novel in about... 
just over a year and in fact it turned out to be just short of four years that it took me to write it and partly I think this was because I was a first-time novelist and when I began writing I was kind of obsessed by research I, I couldn't let a character walk across a room before I knew exactly what was in the room mm. I couldn't let a character say anything unless I knew that the words were the sort of words or were the exact words that someone in 1870 would be using and eventually after after a period of time I began to relax into the writing a bit and realized that although research is important then the most important thing in a novel is the story and that minute details of research are not as significant as the telling of the story and that if you use a word in 1870 that the OED says doesn't come into use until 1875 that isn't an absolute disaster and mm. that the dialogue doesn't necessarily need to be absolutely 100% authentic it just needs to sound plausible and convincing for that period the kind of research that I was doing was originally reading a lot of history books on the Victorian period and in the end I decided that the most important sort of research that I could do was reading writers from the period because you know just as if you go to a foreign country today then the best guide to that foreign country is somebody who's actually lived there then the best guide to the Victorian era are those people who lived in it mm. So I did a lot of reading of 19th century novelists. I read a lot of Dickens, or reread a lot of Dickens, which, of course, although he died in 1870, which is the year that the novel's set, and I, I have the character at one point reading the news of his death in his paper, but I also read a lot of Trollope, who's very good on the detail of everyday life, and I read Wilkie Collins, who's good on the more sensational detail of the period, and... I also read the Sherlock Holmes stories, which I'd, I mean, admittedly they're from a little bit later in the century, but I'd previously written a book about Sherlock Holmes, so I wasn't going to allow that to, um, you know, I needed to reread the Sherlock Holmes stories as well to include that as part of the research. So did you go into writing the novel know that you wanted to write something set in that particular period? Uh Yes, I always wanted to write about the Victorian period because it was the period that I felt I knew most about and also it was the period that I found most interesting as a period in which to set a crime novel. And because I'd lived in London and I'd read a lot about Victorian London, I wanted to set part of the novel in the city. But also I wanted to take the characters outside England and... Uh, one of the germs of the story actually came before any of that, which was about six, seven years ago. I went to see these monasteries at Meteora. I, I don't know if you know them at all, but they're these extraordinary Greek Orthodox monasteries in Thessaly. They're on the UNESCO World Heritage Site. And lots of people have heard of the monastery at, monasteries at Mount Athos. But in a way, these ones in, at Meteora are even more remarkable and memorable they sit on the top of these pinnacles and cliff faces of rock which rise abruptly out of the plains of Thessaly and even today when we went in 2006 some of them are very difficult of access and when I came back from Greece I began to read about Meteora and there are quite a few accounts by 19th century English travellers 
of visiting the monasteries and of the hair-raising methods that were used to get to them, that often the only way of getting to them was via long ladders which clung to the side of the cliffs or possibly even worse. You had to climb into a net or a basket and then you were hauled up this cliff face by by the monks. Uh, and one of the people who visited was actually Edward Lear, the landscape painter and uh, later the writer of Nonsense Verse. Although he very sensibly didn't trust himself to be hauled to the top, he stayed firmly on the ground and just sketched these monasteries. But if you look up Edward Lear and Meteora on the web, you can find some of his sketches of them. And after reading these accounts, I thought what a good idea it would be to have a character visit Meteora in that period. And I wrote a chapter in which characters arrive at the foot of one of the monasteries and uh, Adam Carver, the, the hero of the novel, is then not hauled up the clip face in a net. Uh, but unfortunately, I broke off in mid-chapter and I went on to write lots and lots of other bits of the uh, book. So poor old Carver was left hanging halfway up a cliff face, being shot at by brigands for about six months before I got back to uh, look at him and rescue him from that situation. That's interesting, actually. So you don't write the book um, straight through. You do bits here and there. Uh, well, I, I did in the end do that. I, I found myself writing. Uh, originally, I, I devised a, a plan for the book and and wrote that out in some detail you know several thousand words as to what I wanted to do but then I did find myself dodging about here and there from place to place in the storyline and writing a bit here and then going back and writing a bit there I don't know whether that's what other novelists do I reckon some of them probably do start at uh, A and go straight through until the end at Z but I didn't find it that way I found that I had to uh, write a little here and then move back and then move forward as as the inspiration or as the ideas struck me. Sure. And you touched on there that you, the fact that you chose this period because you thought the type of book you were writing would fit it quite neatly. Mm. Um, why do you think that was the case? Um, well, I mean, for one thing, I'm not alone in, in finding the Victorian period very fascinating. I mean, if you look at all sorts of the media at the moment, then the Victorian era is everywhere. On TV, we have, you know, the suspicions of Mr. Witcher and uh, Ripper Street. And in the cinema, you've got somebody like Guy Ritchie is, turns from writing about Cockney geezer, uh, uh, making films about Cockney geezer gangsters and starts making films about Sherlock Holmes. If you look in the bestseller lists, both fiction and non-fiction for books, then there are an awful lot of titles that are set in the Victorian period. And, um, I mean, I think the reason for that is that, at first glance, the Victorians seem remarkably like us. It's, the period is simultaneously both reassuringly familiar and, and very different as well. That If you look at them... Initially, they don't they don't dress in togas and tunics like the ancient Romans. They don't, you know, wear suits of armour and ride into battle waving lances like 14th century knights. Give or take the odd peculiarity of dress and hairstyle and vocabulary, you think that the Victorians are very like us, and yet you delve a little deeper into the Victorian lives, and they are actually just as strange and different from us. 
as Roman legionaries or medieval warriors. You know, this is a world before cars, before planes, before cinema, before computers, before most of the media which have shaped modern minds. It's a world in which London is the largest city on earth and Britain's ruling over a fifth of the world's population. So they are very different from us and yet they're recognisably us as well. So it's this I think it's this combination of familiarity and strangeness that makes the Victorian era so appealing. And it's also very appealing for a certain style of crime fiction because modern technology opens up all sorts of possibilities for writers, of course, but it, it closes down a lot of possibilities as well because a lot of plot lines in crime fiction become impossible in a world in which we're forever connected on the internet and mobile phone. So that in Carver's quest, they're in, in quest of this manuscript that might be in a monastery library. I mean, today, they'd just go onto the monastery's website and check the manuscript in a matter of minutes. In 1870, they have to travel to Turkish-occupied northern Greece in order to see it. And there's another crucial episode in the book which depends on the hero not knowing the exact whereabouts of his companions now that sort of plot line is no it's not possible now because if all of them had mobiles any tension in the scene would be non-existent they'd, they'd all be swapping texts and smiley faces every <laughs> few minutes so as i say i think by going back into the victorian era you can create a sort of old-fashioned crime novel in ways which you can't in a modern context. That's really interesting. Do you think then that we're likely to see a kind of a growth in historical detective fiction simply because it solves some of those problems? Um, well, I think perhaps we have already, actually. I mean, in the time that I've been uh, involved in the book trade over the last 20 or 30 years, then I think there has been a huge increase in historical fiction it's it's a much more um widely published and widely read genre and also there's been a big increase in historical crime fiction that uh, from all periods not just uh, the victorian period but uh, you know medieval detectives and uh, 18th century detectives roman detectives it's uh, i think there's been a, a increase in in general in the in the genre so to what extent um when you're creating characters do you try to make them in some way representative of the period in which the book's set i don't think you want them to be you want them to fit into that period as as well as you can obviously you want them to be convincing as period characters i don't think you necessarily want to make them representative in any way, perhaps representative of a particular type of character or type of individual from that society. I mean, when I was trying to come up with a character who would fit into the story and fit into the Victorian period, I mean, at first it was it was the kind of characters that I didn't want that were... I didn't want a character who was a policeman because there have been plenty of those. And anyway, at least in the 19th century, that kind of restricts what the character can do and, and the sort of areas in society where he can go. 
and I didn't want a private detective because there'd been even more of those. And whenever you create a private detective, even now, and certainly if you create a Victorian private detective, then the long shadow of Sherlock Holmes hangs over every, you know, every single uh, private detective from that period that's ever been created, I think. And I didn't want somebody who was too upper crust or too lower class because that, again, restricts the area of society into which they can go. I wanted somebody who was, to some extent, a little bit of an outsider. So eventually I came up with Adam Carver, who in the novel was born into wealth, but he's lost his inheritance. His father was a railway baron who embezzled money. And then when his crimes were found out, then Carver Sr. committed suicide. So Carver Jr. at that time was was at Cambridge. And after his father's suicide, the money's mostly gone. He's forced to leave college and make his own way in the world in circumstances he didn't expect to have to face. So he's he's a gentleman, but he's also a gentleman who has to w- live in and interact with ordinary society. And then, as Carver was the first character to come up, and then I, I uh, came up with his surly and disgruntled servant, Quint, who was originally intended as a relatively minor character, but in the course of writing the book, he began to come more and more into prominence and I found that he became quite a, a good foil to Carver and, and also because he's from um, the lower classes, he's a foundling who's been left on, or was a foundling who was left on the steps of a church in the 1820s and has grown up on the back streets of London. Then he became an ideal, ideal foil to Carver and in the end, the book, the publishers have build the, uh, build the book as the first adventure of Carver and Quint. And I think that's a kind of chalk and cheese partnership of two different characters, which is common enough in all kinds of crime fiction. But no, Carver and Quint, I hope, work quite well within that tradition. And what are the pleasures of writing fiction that you don't get from writing a factual historical book? you can make it all up (laughs) (laughs) I mean that you know when I was writing the the uh, spoof biography of Sherlock Holmes which I published you know six seven years ago then one of the delights of that was that if you couldn't find something in the Sherlock Holmes stories and you couldn't find it in uh, the historical record then you were able in the last resort just to make it up and of course, writing a novel is is all making it up in one sense. So it does give you a freedom that you don't have with non-fiction. You have to work within the parameters of, of historical fact and accuracy and, and how people might and might not have behaved in that time. But it does give you a freedom to let characters do a little bit more than they could do if they were real. Of course, characters, yes. real people. Okay. Um, you obviously review fiction books for us each month in the magazine. Yeah. Do you feel that that added any pressure to you, the thought that they may be kind of considered in the same way? 
Yeah, I think being a reviewer, because I not only review for you, but of course I write reviews for the Sunday Times as well, and I very often, I, I do regular historical fiction for them, and I also, in the rest of the reviewing that I do for them, I quite often review historical fiction. So uh, being a reviewer and reading so many historical fictions, it's kind of both an advantage and a disadvantage the disadvantage is you sometimes feel you've read every kind of historical novel already and then faced with coming up with your own, you think, my God, how am I going to come up with anything unusual or original or different? It's all been done before, and not only has it all been done before, I've read it all before. So that was a disadvantage, and it, it was, again, a bit of a um, constraint on me at first until I felt a bit freer in the writing. The advantage is that because you've read such, because I've read such a lot of historical fiction over the years, you kind of become familiar with some of the, what's the word, phrase, tricks of the trade, I suppose. And that therefore, once I did get underway, I felt reasonably confident about the way in which it was going and how I was eventually going to, to uh, bring it all together. And, and I certainly think that, that it then, having written one an, a historical novel myself, I think it probably and hopefully in the future makes me a more, a better and more sympathetic reviewer of history, historical novels, because you've got the insight of having, from having written one of one's, you know, written your own novel, that you realise that... Uh, it's a difficult job and uh, and that you understand more about the process of of writing that everybody you review has gone through i mean that's an interesting point what um surprised you most looking back from how you thought it would go writing you know the, you know, the novel to the end of the process i think in the end it, it was the, the the freedom that it gave you that I was, to begin with, too constrained by uh, the research and by my feelings that I, everything had to be so um, historically accurate and everything had to be... So, it, it, I forgot about the freedom that, that, that fiction does give you and that if I went through a process of learning in the course of writing the novel it was then to allow yourself a bit more to allow myself a bit more freedom than I gave myself at the beginning and to just think this is a story in stories all sorts of things can happen and you don't have to find a reference to something on the pages of a work of history you can you can allow yourself the freedom to to use your imagination are there any um, historical fiction writers that you particularly admire? Um, well, there's lots of them, yes. I mean, at the moment, the, there are two particular writers that I think are absolutely wonderful. One's a British writer and one's an American writer. The British writer is Andrew Taylor, who uh, some years ago published a novel called The American Boy, which is about Edgar Allan Poe and... Uh, I don't know if you know, but Edgar Allan Poe, when he was a young boy, spent time in Islington in North London. He went to school, he, for various reasons, his stepfather was in London and he 
went to school in Islington. So around that small fact, then Taylor builds this very clever and interesting mystery narrative. And he's also written one that was published this year called The Scent of Death, which is uh, set in the 18th century in America. Uh, in fact, at the time of the American Revolution, and it's about a British uh, person who goes to New York, which is then held by loyalist troops. And New York's a loyalist region, but it's surrounded by uh, troops of George Washington. And um, again, a mystery takes place within that uh, within the city, which is very good. Uh, the American writer that I really I really wish, I don't think he's particularly well known over here, and I wish he was better known. His name's Louis Bayard, B-A-Y-A-R-D, and he's written several uh, historical mystery novels, one of which is called Mr. Timothy, which is about, takes the character of Tiny Tim from uh, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, and uh, it's about Tiny Tim when he's grown up and he's a young man, and he's involved in a a mystery story in Victorian London. And uh, Bayard's also written a book called The Black Tower, which is about uh, the French criminologist Eugène Vidocq, beginning of the 19th century, 1810s, 1820s. And it's about the mystery about uh, whether or not Louis XVIII, uh, Louis XVII, the, the Dauphin, the the young child who was supposedly killed in the Bastille during the French Revolution. And some people think that possibly he survived. And, and Vidocq, in Bayard's novel, investigates the mystery of whether or not this child did survive. Um, he's very, very good. I really admire him. But he's not particularly well known in this country, I don't think. But there are, you know, lots and lots of... There's another one who wrote a novel which I reviewed earlier this year called William Palmer. He wrote a novel called The Devil is White, which is about a, a group of people in late 18th century, early 19th century England who... Anti-slavers, anti-slavery people who try and create a utopian community on an island just off the coast of Africa and everything goes disastrously and appallingly wrong. And that, that all, again, is a very, very good novel, I think. What advice would you give to other uh, first-time historical novelists or people looking to set out writing that kind of book? My advice would be to keep on going, because there were times when, as I think the fact that it took me four, nearly four years to do, you can imagine there were times when I thought, I'm never going to do this, I'm never going to finish it, I'm never going to get beyond the 20,000 words that I've done or whatever. But if you do keep on going, then I think eventually you will, you know, it's possible to uh, to bring things together and to, to, to finish the book. And, and it was, it took me a long time to, as a first novelist, to feel relaxed about writing fiction, to get the idea of where the book was going and, and how it was all going to be brought together. It took time, but it did eventually work, and or I think it worked anyway. And and uh, I say people should be encouraged to be persistent and keep on going, I think. Um, and are there any other historical periods that you'd like to set a novel? 
Um, the one period, that, the one thing that I would like to write a novel about sometime in the future, I don't know whether I will ever get the chance or not to do so. I may be, uh, I may be stuck in the Victorian period for the foreseeable future, I don't know. But the one period I would like to, I, I have an interest in old movies and not just the golden age of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, but also British movies and the British movie industry in the 1930s. And I would quite like to set a novel in one of the small British film studios. There were a lot of film studios in 1930s London, places like Twickenham and uh, Ealing, of course. And I think it would be quite an interesting... It would be... You could have a good murder mystery because it would be an enclosed community, which is very often a good way... A good place in which to set a, a murder mystery because you know there are there are plenty of suspects but there's a restricted number of suspects because it's the people within the enclosed community and uh, I just would quite like to write about the film industry and the British film industry in particular. That was Nick Renison. Nick's new book Carver's Quest is out now published by Corvus. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we will do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One person who got in contact was Fiona Bamforth from Canada. She writes, In April, I listened to your review of the Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibition at the British Museum. I was immediately captivated and finally got to see it last week. With the airfare from Western Canada and three nights in a London hotel, It was probably the most expensive exhibition I have ever visited, but worth every cent. Had it not been for History Extra, I would never have heard of it. Well, thanks for that, Fiona, and we're very glad to have been of service. And when it comes to getting in touch with us, you can also contact us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra. Plus, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about Henry VIII's Clash with the Scots at Flodden. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Music